From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, and joining me from a few blocks down the road here in Washington is Patrick Malloy of the Rocky Mountain Institute and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, who's calling in from London. This is our second episode of 2021, and we have a big treat for our listeners this week. We have the CEO and co-founder of Universal Hydrogen, Paul Aramenko. He is joining us from his HQ out in LA to talk about their hydrogen transport and fueling solution for the aviation sector. Paul has a rather storied career in the aviation industry already, and he made time to take us through his plans for universal hydrogen and the future of aviation this morning. We have a lot to talk about, and we will get to our conversation with Paul in just a second. But first, I'd like to quickly mention to our listeners that our good friends over at Inspiratia will be hosting the Hydrogen Decade Virtual Summit on February 17th. This is a full-day event supported in partnership with Black & Veatch, Ballard Power Systems, and the law firm of Pinsent Masons. The discussion will cover a wide range of topics in the hydrogen space, from transportation and heating applications to national hydrogen strategies and the hydrogen investment landscape. Chris, Patrick, and I will be in virtual attendance, potentially recording a segment for the podcast, along with dozens of leaders in the space. So if you are interested in attending the Hydrogen Decade Virtual Summit on February 17th, hosted by Inspiratia, in partnership with Pinsent Masons, Black & Beach, and Ballard Power Systems, you can check out the event site at hydrogen-decade-summit.com. That's hydrogen-decade-summit.com. Or via Inspiratia's website, inspiratia.com, under the Events tab. The event is free for Inspiratia subscribers, but tickets for non-subscribers are also available. Before we get to the substance of the show, due to some technical difficulties on my end, I was not able to join the chat with Paul today. I have to admit, I am horribly disappointed that I missed it, but Chris and Patrick forged ahead without me and had a really fascinating conversation with Paul. So get ready for a great discussion about how hydrogen will change aviation as we know it. All right, gents. So this one's been a long time coming. Firstly, Chris, how are things in the UK? I see you've got a a roommate in the background these days. (laughs) <laughs> I, I do sadly losing him back to uh, the states probably quite soon, um, but uh, but uh, hey ho, it's uh, nature <laughs> feature from uh, from Chris's roommate on this uh, on the podcast. Uh, no, but it's good. Um, I mean, busy time. I think everyone in the hydrogen space has kind of um, started January with a bit of a bang, um, and we've done a lot of announcements at Proteum. We announced two projects we're working on, which is quite exciting. I think is that uh, am I seeing my monitor Proteum swag over there? Ladies yeah. and gentlemen, order your protium swag. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Get in while they make it. <laughs> yeah, well, a long time coming. It was meant to be ready for Christmas, but uh, we picked cool. some. Cool. So, uh, Looks great, man. Cheers, man. Um, so yeah, yeah I, so, assume, uh, I assume Patrick's Patrick's and ours are in the mail. No, is that not? Give, give us give us a twirl. Yeah, know. just to get the full one eighty. Yeah. Listeners can't see it. Oh well. It has a it has a giant logo across the back. Just just so. Uh, <laughs> No, it's all good fun. Um, so, uh, you know, Andrew, of course, you, you know that the next swag has got to be the everything about hydrogen swag. I've, you know, I keep pitching I... this, hoping at some point you're going to do it. So, yep. yeah, we're going to turn this this little Arcteryx hat. Patrick is going to have uh, is going to have the EAH logo on. Although, Patrick, are you going to Patrick stitch has in? a Yeti, a Yeti that is branded with EAH, if you recall. He I does do. have an EAH Yeti. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah. So yeah. that, all, all, all reason we go. What about you guys? I mean, you know, the most probably the biggest transformation since we spoke last time is that you have a new president, um, America mm-hmm. is boring yeah. again, or is that is, too soon? I it is. What so far it's been the most boring two weeks uh, in uh, well that I can recall. It's certainly in the last four years, and it's been wonderful, uh, Patrick. I don't know if you agree, but uh, I think it's been. <laughs> Washington has been a little bit of a weird environment, but things have calmed down here. But the overall uh, milieu, the overall ethos is a lot more positive. The more boring, the better, Patrick. I'll I'll, I'll take a bit of boredom after the the last few weeks for sure. (laughs) Yeah. I I speak for the entire district's population when I say that. 
<laughs> so maybe, yeah, uh, maybe, maybe keeping with the theme. I mean, you know, there were quite a few big climate and energy related announcements as well from the Biden administration. I know everyone in the hydrogen world was saying all last year, we really need to see America getting more involved. We really want to see US leadership on this. And then, you know, Biden seems to have done a lot. Maybe you can kind of give a bit of an overview. I have, well, maybe if Patrick, I don't know if you know the details. I mean, what we know so far, and I, I haven't, I haven't actually seen the, the details, uh, but uh, what we know so far is that he's going to be issuing uh, executive orders, or at least has issued some that are going to roll back executive orders that had, oh, what would you call them? Deleterious effects <laughs> on, uh, on Obama progress. So Obama progress, uh, uh, you know, limited though it may have been in some instances and progressive though it may have been in other instances, was certainly hindered in the past four years, right? And uh, Biden, at least in the last week, has issued executive orders that have rolled back to the extent that our executive orders can roll back those kinds of uh, <coughs> those kinds of policies. He has rolled them back. Uh, in terms of legislative progress, uh, we're not there yet, but you know, I think that's coming down the pipeline, right? Like that's high on the agenda, uh, more funding, huge amounts of funding. Was it 4 trillion, 2 trillion, 4 trillion, 2 trillion, uh, rather important difference there, but over the next four years in clean energy funding, uh, Patrick, I've babbled on already. Did you have anything to add to that? I think you're, you're the, you're the policy guy. Andrew, okay. So yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to start, I'm going to start catching up on the details of my policy discussions. Somewhere between two and four trillion, wasn't it? That's, that's what I heard. <laughs> I, I like that you mentioned uh, pipeline, though, because of course they cancelled Keystone, right? That was one of his big things. That's true. Keystone, that's pipeline. true. That's um, a good one. But I, the one thing I thought, and you know, I, I, I put this out there because I'm trying to be a little bit tongue in cheek and see how many listeners pick it up. But you know, you wonder whether actually a smart move from the Canadians would be to say, well, what if we made it a green ammonia export pipeline, right? Because Canada's just launched its hydrogen strategy. There's going to be a demand for green fuels in the states. There's already a big pipeline network for ammonia in america and you could produce huge huge amounts of very very cheap low-cost green hydrogen and maybe even green ammonia given the industry up there create jobs for the oil and gas kids that are up in alberta and repurpose something that's been a painful process into something that's a sustainable one you kind of wonder maybe that is you know where some of these buttons might go pat's just going to tell me i'm terribly you can already hear it he wants to jump on that so bad chris just like like uh, hold on a second capacity volume would the keystone pipeline have you know, on a, on a on an annual basis, and 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 what is the build out required? Like like, don't get me wrong. If if Proteum can land the size and volume of projects to supply the equivalent, yeah, maybe 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 you got something there. But like, it strikes me that that's a huge volume. Patrick, Patrick, do you you know, Chris and I are over here saving the world in our heads, and you just rain on our parade every time. Uh, I'm just I'm just trying to get you to, dreamers, to save the world dreamers, outside Patrick. of your head. That's that's all I'm worried about. <laughs> well, no, no. as always, Patrick has Patrick has been helpful. Eight hundred thirty thousand barrels of oil a day was what they were looking to do with Keystone, right? So that was kind of the volume. So, I mean, another way of thinking about that is half of all the oil and gas produced, well, half of all the oil produced in the UK and Irish North Sea. There you go. See, take that, tiny, Patrick. Now, who's, who's got the technical details now? Way to go, Chris. Put them back in place. <laughs> all right, guys, that being said, we're getting, we can give Patrick you know, we give Patrick a hard time on the next episode. We got a pretty cool one. I guess I'm going to be introing myself to do the intro here, it seems. Uh, pretty cool guest uh, that has been uh, planning to come on the show. What, we talked to them back in November. Uh, they have been making some progress in, in, over the past few months, and I believe we're starting to see them quite a bit more. It's an early stage company called Universal Hydrogen. We've got Paul Aramenko, who is the CEO, coming on. Uh, and I could give you the general background from what I understand Universal Hydrogen to be doing. And I think, Chris, you probably are better suited to explain a technical side of it. But they are a ref hydrogen refueling infrastructure solution provider in the aviation sector. Would that be the correct way of summarizing that? Um, well, 
uh, as our listeners are going to find out, I'm sure um, that I'm sure whatever we think is the is the easy explanation, there's going to be more complexity <laughs> yes. to it than that. Um, That's what I love to hear. So, uh, but but I mean, I think what is definitely worth just flagging here is the credentials behind the company ah. you know, and the aspiration. Uh, Paul is what late thirties at this point, if that. Uh, but what we have is starting. He started out at DARPA somehow. Well, I don't know if we could say started out at DARPA, but he was at DARPA. Was head of the X Wing X Flight. I know the X Wing is from Star Wars. I got it. But headed up their X Wing X Flight uh, research group. Moved to Google and was on their one of their sort of skunk works. The the Google skunk works world. Headed up that group and then moved over to Airbus and was CTO of Airbus by age 35. This is I'm going off of my my memories. That did that get me basically where we need to be? Yeah, it's uh, it's a depressingly. Uh... Yeah, I'm 35, guys. I am 35. And listen, the last time Airbus, Airbus did not offer me the CTO position. Last time I checked. I certainly wouldn't be here talking with you guys, that's for sure. Oh, well, I mean, you know, so clearly Paul's a better man than you then, Andrew. He is, 100%. 100%. But it'd be exciting to have him on. I mean, I think it's an incredible amount of, um, you know, experience. And as you say, his his uh, credentials are fantastic. And it is a really interesting space. And having had Val from Zero Avia on this time last year or close to this time last year. Nice to be able to kind of show another part of the aviation story. Uh, and obviously, selfishly and shamelessly for Proteum, we actually announced a grant in the hydrogen aviation space relatively recently with the government and with Zero Avia. So it's nice to like... Maybe this is a sneaky... Re- yeah, I see what I see what's going to happen. If, yeah, if trends... Have you ever realized this by now? This is just a shameless excuse, the podcast, for me to get interesting yeah. information out of companies. Well, also a point that I think we should raise is that evidently Ukrainian Americans are dominating the zero emissions flight world at this point. So... Mm-hmm. You know, between Paul and Val, it's uh, it's pretty well taken over. Well, I'm battery electric, right? I mean, because the VTOL program that Paul was leading was was battery, right? And Val's background was e-motorworks. So I think actually the most amazing thing that we haven't drawn is the fact that a lot of people who were in the battery world have gone into the hydrogen world, right? And they don't see them as competitors. They see them as complements. And I think that's kind of something we always talk about on the show. But actually, people like Paul and Val are really good validations in some way of the fact that they're not competitors they are compliments universal themes guys this is this is this is what we're discovering here patrick do you have anything to add or are we just going to get paul on the line and you're just going to sit there i'm excited this is uh this is one that uh i think <laughs> i think we've been uh looking forward to for a little bit and 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 also one that i think it's gonna it's gonna surprise a few people i think it's one worth uh worth definitely listening in and probably listening to again afterwards So, Paul, can you tell us and our listeners a little more about yourself, your background, and how you came to found Universal Hydrogen? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, uh, thanks, Patrick, and um, thanks to all of you guys for having me on the show. I'm a long, long-time fan. Um, I grew up in, in Ukraine, um, in, the, in the former USSR, uh, have always been a uh, space cadet, uh, so to speak. Learned to fly before I learned how to drive. And uh, over the last 10 years or so of my career, I have uh, had a really, really strong focus on decarbonizing um, aviation, and I see I see this kind of as a as the existential challenge of of our generation. And I think that the you know the aerospace industry, the the rocket scientists, so to speak, uh, kind of have a moral obligation to to lead society on this topic as as on many other topics. Right, we're supposed to be on the bleeding edge uh, of ingenuity. And so uh, just a brief thumbnail of, I guess, of the last uh, of the last 10 years of, of my work on this topic, uh, I was at DARPA, where I ran their big uh, systems office, uh, so-called the Tactical Technology Office, which does all of the X-planes, satellites, robots, um, and other large system demonstrators. And one of the things we did there was we started a program called the VTOL X-plane. VTOL uh, stands for Vertical Takeoff, um, Takeoff and Landing. And um, and that program really explored what electrification can do for aircraft design and the kind of flexibility that it opens in in the design space. Um, and and I think it's fair to claim that that project um, was at the genesis of kind of the urban air mobility or advanced air mobility, kind of the electric VTOL air taxi um, revolution that's now that's now going full bore. After DARPA, I went to to Airbus uh, to start their Silicon Valley Innovation Center. It's called Acubed. Um, and and also got uh, got Airbus kind of into this urban air mobility space in, in, a, in a pretty major way. Um, and I think it was the first of the 
uh, of the large established players to enter the space. Now, of course, you have Toyota and Hyundai and and and, and lots of others. But at the time, there was just a handful of startups, um, and Airbus really made it. It made a big splash, right? That Airbus was was really interested in the space, and we flew an aircraft called the Vahana, which was one of these electric uh, electric vertical takeoff uh, takeoff things. Um, and after after a cubed. The uh, the then CEO of Airbus, Tom Enders, invited me to come to Toulouse, the, the headquarters um, in the CTO role for, for the company. Um, and and one of the you know there's I guess a couple couple of major accomplishments that I would I would uh, tick off for that that part of my career. And uh, first and foremost among those was the launch of the EFANX, which was really taking um, hybrid electric uh, propulsion to the megawatt class, right? And saying, hey, this isn't just for trainers, this isn't just for air taxis. This really has impact at the large commercial aircraft scale. Um, and and we also did a lot of work on biofuels. Uh, you know, I had an office in outside of Munich in Ottobrunn, and uh, had a big algae farm uh, in my backyard, uh, so to speak. So we were exploring a wide range of, of options, right, what, for what what it is that the industry can do in terms of decarbonization. After Airbus, I went to United Technologies, which at the time was the parent company for Pratt and Whitney um, aircraft engines, also for Collins Aerospace, uh, which is kind of an air, aircraft systems tier one. Um, uh, supplier. And there we started another uh, somewhat different technology base uh, called the parallel hybrid versus a series hybrid, which was the FNX um, flight demonstrator project called Project 804. Um, and I think that's uh, I think that's still going on. Um, and also, uh, while there really started looking at hydrogen as a as a as a as, a, as an aviation propellant. Um, and Pratt and Whitney um, actually has a long legacy in hydrogen. Back in the 1950s, um, they worked um, they worked on a, on a project called Shamrock, which was to create a hydrogen jet engine. Uh, and and they uh, the engine was built, it was tested, it was uh, quite successful. It's very well documented in 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 a famous NASA report on the history of hydrogen. Um, and and really started started looking at this as as a as a viable technology. Um, you know, one of the things that that I did. Uh, in the CTO roles at, at Airbus and at United Technologies was we had a little informal CTO club, right, where the CTOs of all of the big aerospace companies would get together a couple times a year, you know, at the Paris Air Show and, and one more time somewhere else. Um, and we would talk about sort of non-competitive issues that were that were facing the industry. And decarbonization was always at the top at the top of it. And and you know we would share like here's what we're doing, here's what we're doing, here's the kinds of things that we need to do. And just one of the things that that always struck me at those meetings is how far off the industry is from meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement. Like we really don't have a plan. And and that was always very frustrating to me. And so then UTC merged with Raytheon. That was my exit opportunity. And so uh, so in the fall of, of 2019, I, I left UTC and and a few months later, uh, just uh, I guess last winter, uh, started Universal Hydrogen. And it was really born out of the realization that um, the industry is just moving too slowly, too incrementally, and we needed to do. We had a moral imperative, kind of, uh, to to do something much more drastic. And so the goal of universal hydrogen is really to accelerate the decarbonization of aviation. Um, we came very early to the conclusion that hydrogen is really the not only the best, but probably the only viable solution for, for accomplishing that. Um, and uh, or put another way that aviation is actually the killer app for hydrogen. And the reason for that is just because of the gravimetric energy density, right? It's, it's the best of any non-nuclear uh, fuel out there. And aviation is probably the most or one of the most weight sensitive applications that there is. Probably the other one is space launch. And guess what? Space launch already uses hydrogen <laughs> fairly ubiquitously as a fuel. So aviation is, is kind of the killer app uh, and, and hydrogen is, is, is kind of the panacea. Um, uh, and so that's that was the birth of uh, universal hydrogen. Maybe just Paul. I mean, I think um, I, I'm a bit of a history nerd by heart, so I have to kind of pick up on a few things that you just flagged. I mean, you talked about Project Shamrock. You know, the fact that there was this technology that it you know had this progress. You know, and clearly you were involved in a lot of organisations that had significant research arms and capability of looking at this. Um, why did it take so long from Project Shamrock to today for companies to come into the space and say this is why we want to get involved? And, you know, given that you were in a capability in many organizations before as CTO of Airbus and others to kind of look at this, um, why, I guess, was it not interesting to you then? Um, and what made you suddenly say, I need to re-engage with this and look at this in a bit more detail? Yeah, two, two very good questions. Let me take them in, in the reverse order that you asked them. Um, uh, I, I have been trying very hard from the inside of big aerospace um, to move the industry faster and in a more aggressive way towards decarbonization. 
but the the issue is you know that's probably too long for us to address in, in this podcast is the is the, just the incrementalism of large organizations right it's very difficult to to move them from from the inside um, I tried right and and was successful on many many different fronts um, but I think this problem of, of decarbonizing the industry is just too important and so I think I think we have a, we stand a better chance of disrupting the industry from the outside, which then, of course, is the best forcing function that there possibly can be to move the the, the established players, right, the incumbents. Um, uh, to your to your question about sort of the the long history of hydrogen aviation going back to the 1950s, yeah, I mean the idea that hydrogen has an incredible gravimetric energy density and therefore is a great aviation fuel, it's not at all a novel idea, right? It goes goes back probably to the 1930s. Um, the the thing that is new though is the PEM technology, right, and the ability to produce um, relatively inexpensive green hydrogen. And that technology is what a couple decades old, um, which is uh, I think on a similar time scale that it's taken lithium ion batteries to go from uh, you know from concept from inception to um, uh, to application in, in aviation, right? It's a difficult sector. <laughs> so it's taken, you know, lithium ion batteries, maybe 30 years to do that. And I think, I think PEM technology is kind of on a similar, um, similar time horizon. Uh, so the, the idea that hydrogen, green hydrogen can be affordably produced and the fact that there is enough renewable energy and excess renewable energy out there, um, to actually drive that production. Um, I think that's what's new. And that's why um, I think hydrogen is getting significant renewed attention in aviation and, of course, in other sectors. And so this obviously tees in nicely to the, you know, to the question of well, what is the problem then that universal hydrogen is addressing? Now, you know, you've talked about there's obviously a lower cost of hydrogen and you've talked about PEM fuel cells have evolved. So and the fact that it's very hard to disrupt the industry from within. So is how does universal hydrogen bring together those themes that you've just been talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So we didn't, as, as, as I think, as I think the history um, trajectory there elucidates, right, we, we didn't come to this with a preconceived product or technology that we wanted to sell. Um, we, we asked the question of you know, what will it take to make hydrogen aviation a reality in this new world, you know, with these new technologies and this new, new the new economics of green hydrogen. Um, and we basically found um, two gaps in the value chain. Um, so one gap is on hydrogen distribution and and bringing the hydrogen from points of production, which may be co-located with renewable energy projects, for instance, right, um, uh, to points of consumption, which is the airports. And there is, I think, something like 17,000 commercial airports in the world. Um, so you can't run a pipeline to, to every single one of those. Um, and so a more traditional approach would be to truck it. Right. And uh, uh, and so then you truck the hydrogen, you have to build a storage reservoir, the airport for the hydrogen, and then you have to buy a fleet of um, of hydrogen fueling trucks. And all of that represents a, a very significant capital expenditure that that somebody would have to undertake. Right. Infrastructure expenditure, whether the airport or the airline or governments or some combination thereof. And so so that is one of the one, one problem that we wanted to address is, is, is there another way to do hydrogen distribution that is uh, less capital intensive uh, and easier to ad- lower the barrier to adoption? And then the second one is there's no actual certified hydrogen powertrain for aviation. Um, and aviation certification is like a, it's a thing, <laughs> right? It, it takes, it takes a long time. It takes, uh, some pretty unique know-how, um, to be able to do that. Um, the good news though, is once the certification basis is established by the regulators, which is FAA, EASA, right? Uh, CAA in the UK, once the certification basis is established, which are the criteria by which, um, these powertrains would be certified. It lowers the barrier for future for future certification uh, efforts to go to go through that process. And um, you know, hydrogen uh, fuel cells <clears throat> in their own right are not an issue of first impression for aviation. Um, so, like fuel cell APUs, auxiliary power units for aircraft, have been talked about. There's an SAE standard on fuel cell safety for aviation. Right, so it's a it's a it's a pretty well studied topic. Electric motors are also not a new issue of first uh, an issue of first impression, and I, I talked about some of those projects. Right, uh, EFANX uh, Project Eight Hundred Four. Um, there have been a lot of s- other smaller aircraft that have flown uh, Pipistrelle, Siemens, and and other companies. Um, but what is an issue of first impression is an end to end hydrogen powertrain. Right, and so what are the coupled failure modes between an electric motor and a fuel cell and a hydrogen and a hydrogen supply on an aircraft? And so that's the that's really the second question is uh, or the second pain point that we sought to address with universal hydrogen is hey can we bring the first hydrogen powertrain through certification and to market um, at a commercially relevant scale 
um, to get the regulators familiarized with the technology and sort of pave the way for future hydrogen aircraft. Yeah, and, and just to, to kind of follow that theme a little bit, I, I suppose, you know, uh, thinking about both the, the actual technology kind of deployment solution and also the scaling, it just would be interesting just to kind of maybe walk through what, what universal hydrogen's technology play and positioning is and, and specifically what details maybe you can share that, that kind of show the value in the aviation space specifically versus things that folks might have heard, um, you know, other use cases that folks might be more familiar with. Yeah, absolutely. So, so first of all, let me describe the business model, and then I'll dive into the specific technologies, right? So our business model, I like to analogize to the Nespresso uh, business model, right, which is the coffee capsules. So we don't, we don't grow the coffee, right? We don't produce the hydrogen, we partner and, and, and look for uh, green hydrogen offtake opportunities. Um, we package the hydrogen into a capsule that allows the hydrogen to be transported over the standard shipping freight network, right? So the intermodal containerized freight. Um, so you, you basically put these capsules in shipping containers, they go on trucks, they go on ships, they go on boats, you get them to the airport. And again, they're treated as freight. So you, we know how to load cargo in and out of aircraft and move it around the tarmac. So no new equipment is needed. You don't need a hydrogen fuel truck. You don't need a storage reservoir on the airport. Basically, minimal new infrastructure has to be built. And the intermodal freight network is a really, really efficient way of moving stuff around, around the world. So the cost works out very, very favorably. Um, now, as with Nespresso, right, we have to build the first coffee maker. Otherwise, nobody cares about your capsules. And so that's what we're doing with our re regional uh, aircraft powertrain, um, which is a retrofit, uh, which allows us, it's a simpler certification process to do it as a, as a retrofit. It allows us to get to market much faster. So we are aiming to be in service in 2025. But on the other hand, we would like other people to build coffee makers that are compatible with our capsule technology. Um, so we, don't, we, we, we monetize the, the hydrogen supply not the aircraft. And we're we're not trying to be in the aircraft business. We're not trying to be an aircraft OEM. In fact, we want to partner with as many people and get them to build hydrogen airplanes that are compatible with our with our distribution network and with our capsule technology. So that's the model. Um, now, in terms of what are the techno bricks uh, that that enable that, right? So we have um, uh, we have two flavors of capsules, um, so to speak, for the regional market. Um, and of course, for different size airplanes, you'll have a different scale of of, of capsule as well. Um, and we can talk about the other other market segments. Um, beyond regional but so for regional we have a high pressure gas uh, capsule and we have a liquid uh, a liquid capsule they are form factor equivalent um, and so they are interchangeable on a per flight basis so an airline can choose to fly a particular flight on a high pressure gas uh, capsule or on a liquid capsule you get um, about 30 percent better range out of the liquid capsule on the other hand obviously liquefaction is a pretty energy intensive process there are some logistical constraints on the time um, to transport the liquid capsule before you either have to start venting the liquid or or consuming the liquid, um, and I'll talk a little more about about what that is. So those are the two the two capsule technologies. Um, then we have a logistics planning tool um, called Proteum Planner, which allows us to optimize for a given airline footprint um, and given what is their fleet, what are the destinations, the route network, uh, the frequencies, load factors, etc. Um, and given the points of supply for green hydrogen. Um, that are in the vicinity of their foot uh, of their footprint, as well as the freight network, the overlay of of what are the freight routes uh, by truck, by train, and by ship. It allows us to basically optimize the transportation of hydrogen from production to consumption, right, to each of the airports. Um, uh, ensure that we can guarantee a particular quality of service, um, and of course, computes the the price, right, of of of, of what that nets out to for the for the airline. Um, so that's kind of on the logistics side. Then on the powertrain side, um, we are developing a two megawatt class powertrain. Um, and so two megawatts basically gets you a good chunk of the regional market. It gets you the, the two most popular regional airplanes that are out there is the Dash 8, which is made by de Havilland Canada, and the ATR-72, which is a, ATR is a consortium between Airbus and Leonardo. Um, and uh, or I should say JV between Airbus and, and Leonardo. And so both of those airplanes are about two megawatts per side. Um, and so the, the two megawatt uh, class powertrain allows you to, to retrofit both of those aircraft. Um, we don't do the fuel cell, so we partner with Plug Power on, on the fuel cell. Um, and basically it's an adaptation of their latest ProGen line of fuel cells, um, lightweighted for aviation use. Um, and we are partnering with Magni X uh, for the motor. Um, to to provide that, and Magni X is also a startup, a little a little more mature than we are, 
Um, so they're just about to scale up production of electric motors for aviation, specifically designed for, for aviation use. And then one other bit uh, to enable the powertrain, right? Again, it's not enough to just put a fuel cell and, and connect it to a motor. You got to have an energy management system that's wrapped around it. And so that takes care of the thermal and it takes care of, you know, preloading the fuel cell and making sure that when the pilot guns the throttle, for instance, they get a pretty instantaneous response out of the system. Um, and so that energy management system is something that we have developed uh, ourselves because it just, it, it, it didn't exist. Um, um, and so there, those are kind of the technology building blocks. Um, and, and I can talk a little more about the capsules maybe because there's, there's some unique uh, sort of secret sauce on that front. Um, basically on the gaseous uh, hydrogen capsule, um, uh, you know, the, the key drivers for aviation are weight and certifiability, right? Those are the two, weight and safety. Um, and so um, on the weight front, um, we are able to get a, a significantly better mass fraction than a standard, you know, composite over at pressure vessel. Can I be a bit rude and just dive in here? Go for it. I can see yeah, that, you know, because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm conscious that I'm trying to process this and I'm pretty sure our listeners are probably will be listening to this going, oh my God, right. Okay. Let, have I written this all down? Do I understand yeah. this? So maybe just taking a step back, um, capsules, right? So I think people will probably be a little bit more familiar with um, BYC or Avia who've got very conventional pressurized containers. Mm -hmm. If they've understood a little bit, seen a bit about pressurized aviation, or maybe they've heard of people like Alakai that are talking about cryogenic, you know, it, it doesn't seem to me that you're talking about conventional pressurized hydrogen or conventional cryogenic. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, and you know, go in. So it, it, just to clarify, are these capsules separate from a hydride style solution or a liquid organic hydrogen carrier solution? Um, maybe you can explain what term you would use to classify these capsules as just, I guess, a starter for 10. And then it is a question, but, you know, how would you describe visually what these things look like? Because that's the other thing that I think is very difficult for people who are looking at reading in the hydrogen space is to get a sense of what these things are, right? Yeah. Especially because so much of that is only really going into the first stage of commercialization. They're usually only a handful of pilots, and so very few people have ever seen them. So, yeah, maybe help with the descriptor. Sure. What is, what is it, or what is the next nearest thing to it that we already know, and what does it actually look like? Yeah, absolutely. So, so first of all, these are, these are um, fundamentally, they're tanks, right? We call them capsules in order to emphasize the modular nature and the fact that these uh, you know these capsules really really travel with the hydrogen for its entire its entire life so they're not fuel tanks in, in the way that you may move fuel from one vessel to another um, in the in the hydrogen logistics chain so that's hence the different nomenclature but fundamentally they are just a vessel a hydrogen vessel um, they are pill shaped um, we put two of them two pills in a frame and this is for, again for the regional application it's a little bit different for larger aircraft and for smaller aircraft um, they're about six feet long these uh, these pills right so they span the width of a regional regional aircraft fuselage and and like I said there are two flavors um, one is high pressure gas um, so there's no there's no hydrides or anything like that it's just uh, hydrogen at 850 bar 850 atmospheres um, and um, and the uh, kind of the neat thing about it is um, it is not just a composite overwrap pressure vessel. Um, and so our approach has been to try to optimize weight and try to optimize for, for certifiability from, um, from day one. Um, and so, you know, in a composite overwrap pressure vessel, you basically have a carbon epoxy composite that is responsible for confining the hydrogen, for holding the pressure, um, for providing the uh, the impact and abrasion resistance and any any sort of shock loads, right? So everything is holds on is is pinned on this one structural um, approach. Our approach is different, um, which is to say that we will have one layer per function, um, uh, and and so there is a hydrogen confinement layer, which is a thin membrane. Then there is a pressure confinement layer or pressure vessel layer, which is um, it's a carbon braid, but it is epoxyless. Um, so it's just a three-dimensional carbon woven kind of sock, if you want to think about it, that goes around the membrane and holds the tensile force, right? It provides the tensile strength, um, but it doesn't have any other requirements, right? So it doesn't provide the impact resistance. It doesn't hold the hydrogen. It's just there for to confine the pressure. That saves an incredible amount of weight in epoxy. Um, uh, uh, then outside of that, we have a very thin Kevlar layer, which is responsible for the impact and abrasion resistance. And then, as I mentioned, two of these capsules go into a frame, and that frame takes the shock loads uh, from, you know, from a uh, from a crash landing, for instance, right? That you have to certify, you have to be able to certify this for. So, by separating the functions across the the different layers, um, it gives us about a seventeen percent mass fraction, right? So that's a 
almost two x uh, better than than a typical type four uh, composite overwrap pressure vessel, uh, and it gives us a much easier path to certification because again, you just have to verify that each layer does one thing. So that's the that's the gaseous capsule approach. Does that help paint a picture, Chris? Yeah, no, it is actually fantastic, and I really appreciate you um, explaining the, it, it sort of the reference to type four um, because I think that's. You know, for for the listeners, I think you know types of pressure vessels. There's probably a handful of people who kind of get into the weeds around this, right? But you know, if you think Type Four is what the Toyota Mirai, you know, they used to fire the bullets at for the tests. Yep. If you remember the YouTube videos, and Type One's your kind of vanilla canister. I mean, the fact that you've got that layering in there is really is fascinating. It makes such a huge difference to understand how you're going through that, and of course, weight on those containers is hugely sensitive. I mean, Patrick always talks about this for transport. So the fact that you can do that with multiple layers inside and you get that two and a half X weight drop is interesting. I'm guessing that the per unit cost is much higher, but that is offset by the fact that you're using it in an aviation context and therefore the weight gain offsets that, which again is your killer app point from the beginning, right? Yep. It's, you know, you can overcome all those things because of the way that it's configured. So that was really interesting. Yep. Um, yeah. Yep. And then on the liquid side, maybe if I can push you, because again, I think this is just really sure. unique. This is really unique. Yeah, no, a- a- absolutely. So so on the liquid side, um, again, uh, the, re- the requirements are, are weight, and, weight, weight and certifiability. Um, but there's actually a third requirement, which is around venting, which ties into certifiability and safety. So one of the things that we um, we wanted to avoid is having to vent the the gas as it evaporates, right? As the liquid slowly warms, right? And so our liquid solution is also a pressure vessel, so it holds the the overpressure for about forty hours, which is enough time for us to deliver these capsules um, via truck uh, across a typical regional airline network um, and to store them at the airport for about a day. Right, so the the concept of operation would be that we would send trucks. They would uh, they would you know drive uh, for 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 the day prior, or they would arrive in the morning. They would unload the the liquid capsules. They would be stored for that day's flights, um, and then the truck would pick up the expended capsules um, and and take them back into our reverse logistics chain for inspection and, and reuse, basically. So the um, so that's probably the key feature. We do have some unique insulation um, uh, properties, but fundamentally, it is a two-wall metallic cylinder. But that is designed to hold the overpressure for about forty hours from from uh, from the slow evaporation that you get out of liquid. So, Patrick, you're going to have to dive in here because I'm going to just yeah. keep asking Paul questions <laughs> otherwise because it's just getting too interesting. I'm, I'm trying not to. I'm, I'm holding back as well because I, I, you know, moving to. Like an 850 bar pressure as well. There's there's dynamics around that, and it's also just above standard, right? Like like you know most folks are moving this around. You know in pressurized canisters, it's 350 or maybe 700 in some cases as well. So this no very cool. Um, I think I think let's 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 just try and uh, jump back onto the the question a little bit and and bring it back to the market because as much as the the technical side is critical in the secret sauce, I suppose one of the questions that we we always um, kind of ask is, you know, when will we be able to see a commercial hydrogen-powered flight? And um, I suppose as a follow-on, um, are there any existing deployments uh, of uh, the universal hydrogen solution or any uh, pilot projects that you uh, you want to let us know about or uh, or exclusive uh, exclusively announced? We are less than a year into our existence, right? So we're coming up towards the end of kind of our phase one or our seed phase. Um, and we are just starting to build full-scale hardware, right? So we've done detailed engineering design. We've done some subscale, some subscale uh, prototyping. And uh, we are just now uh, over the next uh, three months, by the end of Q1 or so, we expect to have a full-scale um, gaseous hydrogen capsule, a full-scale liquid hydrogen capsule, and a subscale powertrain. Um, so those are those are kind of the near term goals um, in terms of the when is this when do you see this on the market? So we are targeting the regional application because we think we can get there uh, quite quickly with mature fuel cell technology with mature motor technology. Right. So no invention really necessary um, beyond, I guess, the, the lightweight storage that I, that I described. Um, so we think that and because we're pursuing this as a retrofit, uh, it is a simpler path to certification that gets us to market by 2025. And so these are 40 to 60 passenger aircraft, and we we um, lots of enthusiasm from airlines. Um, so we would expect there to be first flights, um, first commercial flights in 2025. Experimental flights would be in 2023. Now there are other market segments. Obviously, um, we just saw the regional one as as you know a really good way to start making a difference. 
um, and start flying hydrogen at sort of commercially relevant scale, but also to provide a proof point both for smaller and bigger aircraft. And so let me just talk for a minute about that. So on the smaller side, um, you know, I mentioned the urban air mobility or advanced air mobility kind of eVTOL air taxi uh, revolution that's happening. Obviously, those have yet to come to market. Lots of activity in that space. They've, they've yet to come to market. Most of the first gen vehicles, um, except maybe for Alakai, as you mentioned there, are lithium ion battery powered. And um, and that limits their range and limits their passenger capacity. So typically they would be, you know, two to four passengers and sub 100 kilometer type ranges. Um, hydrogen, um, we've done some conceptual design. We have no interest in, again, being an, an, an aircraft maker in that, in that space, but we want other aircraft makers to see the benefit of hydrogen and, and to bring hydrogen solutions to market. So, um, so we've had discussions with pretty much all the major players in that space and done some conceptual design for what a, a hydrogen, um, and actually would be a, a hydrogen battery hybrid where you would use the hydrogen for the entire duration of the mission. So hydrogen fuel cell, electric motor type, type powertrain. And you would use the battery to augment for, for hover only during the hover regime. So that downsizes the battery um, and the hydrogen gives you the range. Um, and so overall that tends to save, it, it tends to cut the weight of the entire propulsion system by about half. Um, and the volume by about two thirds, which is pretty <laughs> pretty incredible, and gives you um, uh, and gives you pretty substantial range extension on those vehicles. So a lot of the players in that space are now starting to look at this kind of hybrid hydrogen battery solution as their second gen vehicle. And so if you if you sort of forecast a little bit, read the tea leaves, and when might that come to market? I would expect that first gen vehicles, you know, different companies make different claims, but let's say on average, if we squint, it'll be maybe 2024, 2025 um, will be the first commercial service for a lithium ion powered vehicle and maybe 2027, 2028 for a, high, for a hybrid um, hydrogen battery urban air mobility. Um, and so that's kind of on the, that's smaller than regional, obviously. Um, and then on the larger end, um, and this is where it becomes really interesting from a, from a climate impact, you know, really moving the needle on the Paris Agreement, uh, uh, if you will, is, is the single aisle or narrow body, right? So this is the A320 class Boeing 737 class. Both Airbus and Boeing um, are going to replace that class of aircraft with a clean sheet design in the 2030s, probably early, early to mid 2030s. And that's a, you know, I think that's a pretty, pretty well known fact. Um, and, um, and, and, and I think uh, Airbus has been far more vocal about looking at hydrogen as a solution for that clean sheet aircraft. Um, but obviously, if Airbus moves, I think I think we can all reasonably expect that Boeing and maybe even Comac, right, the Chinese aircraft maker, uh, will have to move. Um, and um, and you can you you can apply hydrogen at that scale. It probably would be a combustion approach uh, versus a fuel cell electric approach because the motors now you're talking instead of two megawatts per side in the regional, you're talking twenty megawatts, um, and you get into really high voltages and the power distribution system gets really heavy. So uh, I think for the early 2030s, that would almost certainly be a hydrogen combustion type architecture. But we think that the fuel system, it still makes sense to have uh, these modular capsules um, that don't require any infrastructure that are removable from the aircraft um, and that uh, provide this very flexible fuel distribution, low cost and flexible fuel distribution system. Um, and so, uh, so obviously we're, we're very bullish on that. And most passenger miles in the world are flown by that class of aircraft. Um, um, and then, uh, in the much longer term, right. So, and, but the long, the longest route that aircraft would fly would be like Heathrow to JFK, right? Like you don't, and so, so if, if you're talking Heathrow to Sydney, right, that's a, that's a different story. That's typically a wide body or twin aisle aircraft, right? This is the A350 787 family. Um, and that's harder, right? Because while hydrogen is great from a gravimetric energy density, it's not so great from a volumetric energy density perspective. And for the global kind of routes, you start running into volume problems. And so probably for those aircraft, you would really need a different configuration than a, a standard tube and wings aircraft. Um, so you would have to move to, to something unconventional like a blended wing body um, uh, configuration, which has really good volumetric properties. So there's lots of volume in that configuration. And so you could potentially do a global route, but that's a, that's a radical departure in everything from design tools to materials, right. And, and other things that the industry. These are the ones that look a bit like the Australian, um, boomerang type structures, wasn't it? I think Patrick, you were showing the photos of the Airbus kind of the curve shape. I mean, that's what you're really driving up. Exactly. Isn't it, is where you're exactly. completely throwing kind of the, the conventional perception out the window yep. and doing something different. Exactly. And so that's probably realistically kind of a 2040s, uh, play. 
um, which in any case is about the right time frame for the successor to the A350 and the 787 to start start coming online. So that's and and sort of by, and by then you really could have the full gamut of of commercial aviation from the very small from the two seater air taxi all the way to the 300 passenger plus uh, airliners flying on hydrogen. Um, and so that's that's the future we're fighting for. It's very cool. I, I suppose just very quickly as a, as a kind of a, a follow on, I know you've painted a, a pretty clear kind of timeline for the, the deployment potential at different ranges and whatnot. And I suppose one, one question that, that kind of jumps to mind when we talk about deployment is around the immediate barriers or constraints in deploying the technology. Uh, I just wondered if, you know, if you have a sense, I know, I know you said the, um, Regional aircraft, you're pretty confident that, that that's a, a first kind of entry point and that's r- pretty rapidly deployable. Like what what constraints are there maybe in the the next kind of tier up or what things could accelerate your, your ability to get into that, that particular market? Yeah, uh, honestly, the, we, we don't see a huge number of technological obstacles. Right. Uh, I mean, again, hydrogen has been around for a while. It's been studied in a variety of different applications. Um, I think the the biggest obstacle in this whole in this whole aviation story um, with hydrogen is is certification. Even though hydrogen and and I think I think I'm speaking to a friendly audience here, right? Hydrogen actually intrinsically has better safety properties than jet fuel does, right? Because it, it tends to burn up, it burns quickly, right? It doesn't pool. Um, uh, the um, the issue is that jet fuel has, you know, 60, 70 years of experience, industry experience, and it's been studied and all the all the different conditions and uh, um, the different scenarios that can arise, sort of anomalies that can happen. Um, and so it's been, it has the benefit of, of, of those decades of, of safety analysis. Um, hydrogen does not um, nearly to the same extent. And so we have to convince ourselves and convince the regulators and go through this ex- sort of accelerated process, if you will, right, of, of proving that the physics are on our side, right, because it, it is intrinsically a safer fuel, but there's a lot of learning um, that has to happen, learning and education that has to happen around uh, the safety properties to get to a successful certification. And so I see that as probably the single biggest risk. And, um, and, and I, and that's also the reason we have assembled the team that we did at Universal Hydrogen is to, is to, is to tackle that risk. Um, and again, it's not just technical. Certainly, certainly on the technical side, you know, my, my co-founder and our CTO, uh, JP Clark is, is really one of the foremost, um, um, academics in this space. Um, but we also have, you know, former CEO of Airbus, uh, um, a former deputy administrator of the FAA, right? We've had to assemble um, those kinds of people in order to help us tackle these um, the, these certification barriers on a pretty rapid time scale. No, and I mean it's I mean the safety piece is really is really critical. I mean you know um, we have uh, so I chair a trade association in the UK. One of our members, the University of Ulster, that has one of the world's leading hydrogen safety um, groups that also do. Uh, type four storage and different technologies around that, and and it is incredible the amount of work and effort that needs to come in. But you know you're right, Paul, to say that inherently every time they do the analysis, it comes out that you know there are ways of making hydrogen safer, you know, than even uh, petrol in your car, for example. And I think that would throw people to realise that it is safer intrinsically. But it is you're absolutely right. You've got to consistently show that business case um, and, and demonstrate it in, uh, to rightly ourselves, right? Because we know sure no, you got to do the, the work. CEO of a company, as you know, the last thing you want to do is put something out there and have to explain to people. Well, it doesn't, you know, it didn't work the way you wanted to. I mean, that's everyone's nightmare, right? It's those kinds of outcomes. Yeah, so. absolutely. Um, look, I, I, there we have um, a couple more. Um, I'm conscious also that uh, you know we could probably take Paul's time for hours here, so I think we're going to try and make these ones a little bit faster. I, I love um, this stuff as much as you do, guys. So, <laughs> well, I know. So, we're, we're, but we're, you know, maybe we just get you back. I mean, that might be the other way of doing it because also Andrew's probably going to be sort of scratching against the walls when he realizes. Going to be borderline this, livid, so, I think, um, to be honest, but. Uh, indeed, um, indeed, he's been waiting for it for months. So, um, so no. I, I, one of my questions I wanted to ask about was: um, I think the model is really interesting insofar as you know you're taking green hydrogen being produced, as far as I understood it, from other third parties. But what you're doing is you're doing that whole um, accumulating and then you know picking it up with these unique proprietary um, storage technologies, whether that is pressurized or it's liquid, and then you are managing that distribution infrastructure. Um, Something that comes up a lot at the moment is the idea of multimodal fueling hubs and the idea of airports as being a hub for both, you know, the taxis, the buses, the ground vehicles, as well as the aircraft, and that being a big way of helping to build out scale and also helping to tie everything in together. Is there any reason or is there any thought at the moment within Universal Hydrogen around how 
your proposition might be adapted into some of those other transportation frames. And therefore, instead of it just being a distribution mechanism for the aviation space, it could also work in, I appreciate probably not passenger cars, but other return to base functions, like for example, a, you know, a bus that is shuttling from the car park to the main terminal or, you know, the ground vehicles that are working to and from within the base. Maybe you could talk a little bit to that and, and I guess more broadly, the challenges in infrastructure around the model that you have. Yeah, I mean, in general, I think the modular fueling approach is applicable to um, just about every mode of transportation that benefits from the flexibility, right, of not having um, a massive amount of fixed infrastructure, fueling stations or production sites um, uh, built up all at once. Um, the, the, the specific capsule technology that I described is really um, optimized for weight and, um, and safety certification. Um, so the, uh, and, and, you know, those are relevant factors in every, in every transportation mode, but relevant to different degrees. Um, and so it is, it is more expensive than a, um, a standard off the shelf, uh, uh, off the shelf capsule that you might buy. Um, uh, but it has these benefits that are, that are pretty unique, uh, to aviation. Um, I think that there are other, uh, capsules that can be designed and optimized for other modes of transportation. Right, where the trade-off, for instance, between weight and cost, or the 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 certification, the stringency of the certification regime may be a little bit different, um, and and we're certainly looking at those. Um, again, aviation's our killer app and also our passion, <laughs> so it comes first. Um, but we're absolutely looking at, at at the other verticals and seeing what is the sweet spot uh, in terms of a modular fueling solution for those. It's a question that our, a lot of our audience are investors. Obviously, Paul, we, we, we like getting into the technical weeds, but investors are, and I think generally people in the market are really interested to learn a little bit about corporate structure. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how many of you are there, where are you based, um, and a little bit about who some of your early funders are, and of course, anything you can share, any exclusives would be delighted to have, but uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, Kate will uh, tell you off if uh, we pry too hard. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So um, so we are um, we are a team of about 15 today um, and have been for the last, uh, you know, for the last nine months of, of our existence, um, very heavily focused towards engineering. Um, although we, we, re- we just recently added uh, an, an eminent uh, chief commercial officer um, to, to our team who does a lot of the airline, airline relationships. Um, we are in Los Angeles, uh, although, although a lot of the team, you know, we were found, we were sort of a child of the pandemic, right, as a company, if you will. So we were, we were founded as a distributed company. Um, all the hardware work is, is being done in L.A. Um, our COO, Jason Chua, and I are both in L.A., and um, a big chunk of the engineering and technical team is here, but, but, but also pockets around the world. Um, our, um, uh, our investors so far are, um, so there are two, two, two kind of primary, uh, primary investors. One is Trucks, uh, which is a, uh, a Silicon Valley uh, transportation and mobility fund, um, quite, quite well-known one. Um, and the second one is Plug Power, which is also our fuel cell partner and um, and, and green hydrogen offtake partner for for large swaths of the world. Uh, overall, I guess you know uh, for, forward looking uh, financial stuff is 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 challenging to discuss. Um, so I think the only the only thing I I think I can say is that overall, sort of over the course of the next four 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 and a half years uh, to get to market, um, this is about a three hundred million dollar project. Um, of which we think about 180 or so will need to be equity financed, um, and the rest can, would be a split between debt, debt financing and um, and non-dilutive government funding. Um, and the debt financing obviously would go towards more capital capital assets, right? So things like tooling and jigs for 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 capsule manufacture, test air flight test aircraft, things like that. Um, so that's kind of the the overall I think breakdown. Um, and probably the limit of what I, I can say <laughs> in a public forum. Yeah, I suppose, and and just to kind of, I think you, you kind of referenced the the connection to, to to plug power and green hydrogen in there. I suppose one one question we haven't quite dealt with, but probably probably a central one is around kind of your kind of sense or stance around hydrogen production sources and preferences or or targets around that. Um, just wonder, wondering wondering what your view is. Yeah. So first, we are 100% green hydrogen because again, we are we are in this first and foremost because we are passionate about decarbonizing air travel, um, and so we are not compromising on the source of hydrogen. Right? There cannot be carbon in the production in the production of the hydrogen. And then, and then I think 
if I understood the second, the second aspect of your question is maybe around the economics of green hydrogen a little bit. So in order, in order to break even, um, meaning that, um, that in order for a hydrogen regional airplane to operate at the same unit economics and unit economics in the aviation market are typically cost per available seat kilometer or cost per available seat mile. Um, we need, um, uh, we need uh, hydro- green hydrogen to be at about $3, $3 per kilogram. Um, and then we add about 50, 50, 60 cents on top of that for distribution and the amortization of the capsules, right? And, and things like that. Um, and, and so that's, that's our goal for 2025. And it seems like a, an attainable goal, right? So we have credible offtake agreements uh, now in, in several different regions uh, to support a couple of different airlines that meet that economic goal. Um, now, that's not just a, uh, there's a, there's a lot of things that factor into that unit economics, right? One is, for instance, that, um, that a fuel cell has a much lower maintenance footprint than a jet engine does, right? Because it's at a stable thermal environment, there are no moving parts, right? So you can see how, how maintenance might be significantly cheaper. Um, the other element that plays in our favor is the fact that a hydrogen, ele- a fuel cell electric powertrain is actually more energy efficient end-to-end um, than, um, than a, a turbine engine. Um, so all of that helps uh, a little bit, right? Meaning that on a, on, a, on a pure energy equivalence basis, we can actually take hydrogen that's a little bit more expensive than jet fuel um, and still get equivalent or better operating economics. But then, of course, if, if when hydrogen drops to the you know, $2, $1 per kilogram range, as the industry seems to think that it will, um, and, and a lot of the suppliers you know, uh, seem to be willing to, uh, to commit to, um, uh, at, at that point, right, the, the economics become far superior to, to conventional, um, uh, conventional uh, jet fuel powered aircraft. Um, and, um, and so that value proposition, and actually because uh, airlines tend to enter into long, long-term fuel contracts, we're able to give them the benefit of some of that forward pricing, even in 2025. Um, so the value proposition for airlines is a pretty compelling one, right? The, the, we're not just reliant on, you know, eco-warrior passengers and government pressure. Um, to to drive hydrogen adoption, but the economics are actually favorable. Look, I mean, I think we could probably spend easily another hour. I was just looking at the time going, Patrick, can we justify another question? But I think it's probably, we're probably pushing the line. Paul, maybe um, if we give you 30 seconds to share something that you feel we missed, something that you maybe would like to add as a final word or final thought for our listeners, that'd be great. And then, uh, and then we'll uh, let you go. No, I, I, you guys ask uh, great questions and, and I think we have a, a shared passion for this topic. Um, so thanks, uh, thanks for the invitation. Um, delighted to be here and very happy to engage with your listeners um, on Twitter um, uh, at Paul Aramenko. Fantastic. Well, look, Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, really excellent. And uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll keep you in touch and we'll probably have to get you back on. I'm sure uh, if our listeners are anything like us, and they usually are, then they'll have just as many questions. So Patrick, I, I mean, we could barely stop asking the poor guy questions. What were your thoughts? What are your impressions? What's your key takeaway from that discussion? Um, a little bit wow, right? I, look, it's 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 very 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 interesting, very cool. I'm 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 intrigued to see how aviation, which has been consistently challenging to decarbonize, engages with the, the now growing momentum with folks like Universal Hydrogen and, and and plenty of others now who are starting to solve the problems in the space. Right. So obviously Airbus made made some announcements. Obviously, you know, Zero Avia uh, we we had on before, like. This feels like real momentum a little bit, and it's quite encouraging, right? Like it's going to be a challenge, right? And and you see that in terms of you know adoption profiles, and and you know Paul Paul rightly spoke to some of the differences um, that you'll see between regional aircraft versus longer duration flights, and and the kind of the actual different use or or kind of. Um, uh, the different mode of 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 providing energy for the aircraft, right? Like the the difference between you know electric motors versus combustion based uh, based use of use of the hydrogen. What what it does strike me as as also very positive, and and I, and I liked the um, the the matter of fact directness of the fact that he he said this is a green hydrogen solution um, and a green hydrogen approach. You know we we talk a lot about cost declines. We talk a lot about you know, uh, learning curves and expectations of, of, of decline. One of the key factors here is going to be deployment. We're, we're, we're here now and we, we talk about the need for deployment. 
reasonably regularly. This this sort of application uh, and and a sector of this scale deploying rapidly helps drive down those costs. You know, three dollars a kilogram. Uh, that's an encouraging price point. I know there's some kind of uh, you know complexity always to 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 getting you know a delivered probably three dollar kilogram, but um, there's a lot there's a lot here and it's very positive and and I hope and expect that this is. Uh, continuing momentum in the the aviation space towards a towards a zero carbon future. But yeah, very very interesting, very interesting um, structure design. Uh, the the modules, the the kind of the pressure systems as described, just very 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 interesting. So, what about you, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you almost have to. Um, it's almost one of those things where I'm fairly sure if we ruminated on this and came back to it in kind of a month's time, we'd be taking it from a completely different angle, you know, because there's so many different components of the discussion that we could touch into, you know. I think the timeline piece was really interesting, um, you know, looking at how they see the road out. Um, I think the model is interesting insofar as, um, you know, if I'm thinking of close competitors, you know, one thing that's unusual is they're focusing on the 40 to 60 seat uh, aircraft, which is much larger than where a lot of the competitors have been looking. Um, they also have this proprietary refueling, uh, well, proprietary uh, hydrogen storage components, um, which is also really interesting. That is not something that, um, you know, anyone really in the market has been doing. Certainly none of the people in the aviation market have really been focusing on that. You know, as I mentioned on the discussion, it's normally a conversation around things like hydrides. If people are trying to be quite innovative or liquid organic hydrogen carriers, it's very rarely we've got a new type of pressurized storage vessel or a new type of liquid storage vessel. So that was all really interesting. Um, the piece that I didn't touch on in the conversation I thought was a good one to bring up now, though, was actually to talk about the plug power connection. Because what's really interesting to me here is the fact that actually this is a completely logical step for plug in many ways. You know, plug is, is I believe now, and Patrick, you tell me if I'm wrong, the single largest listed hydrogen and fuel cell business on any stock exchange. Um, and it, in some senses, is a nice evolution of their strategy, right? Because they now have a very widely deployed fuel cell um, solution, which plugs into multiple different drivetrains, right? It plugs into existing suppliers of forklifts, it plugs into existing uh, providers of uh, aviation craft, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm sorry, of, of, of road transport, and now it's plugging into aviation, and there's a unique storage component to it. And of course, they produce the hydrogen and they transport it already in their distribution network across the US. So. I actually think that's kind of interesting um, to see and what it shows is how hydrogen creates such an interesting scale proposition that you can move so quickly and seamlessly into multiple different parts of the mobility sector or parts of the industry sector um, you know, in a very sequential way. I think that is absolutely fascinating and I'd be really interested to see how companies like Ballard or you know others, other competitors in the fuel cell space look to respond to that, and indeed how even a lot of hydrogen producers look to respond to those kind of more vertically integrated propositions. I, I, what, what's your kind of thoughts on that as a dynamic? I mean, I maybe you think I'm completely mad, but that was something that you know came out to me as really striking. I suppose I suppose it makes sense to 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 a degree anyway, right? And. I suppose reflecting on it in a slightly different way, you know, in every conversation, in every webinar, in every chat, eventually we come back to the, the chicken and egg question. And when you start to get into the kind of the, the nuts and bolts, you know, you and I know this well. I think quite a few folks are, have spoken on it before as well. But, you know, the transportation storage challenges become significant. And then the risk of non-alignment between supply and demand, right? Like is, is, is a risk factor for both parties, right? As you start to move into uh, a kind of a position where you can show value and show pipeline and, and consumption, right? So you can supply or produce and also drive, drive that, um, that uh, supply resource to, to provide um, lower cost, right? Drive down the cost as, as attached with supply. And also attach that to a multi-market potential sector. I think I think there's some some opportunity there. But this this will all go back to to market design, right? Like, so what are what is our market when it gets mature, 
or more mature going to look like? Are we going to see a more integrated market? Are we going to see international trade? Are we going to see the exports? And, and you know, there's definitely some folks who are looking at that and looking at the, the prospect of being able to produce more effectively in different locations and ship to, to market points. But yes, like fundamentally, it's going to be, it's, it's, a bold, it's a bold move for sure. It's interesting to see how that'll kind of like functionally play out for them. But by the same token, you know, this isn't necessarily different than what we've seen with electric vehicle manufacturers who, you know, have gone from procuring battery solutions from, from you know, OEMs in that space to then just acquiring the OEMs and producing a vehicle with an in-house, an in-house battery, right? So, yeah, I think there's some interesting interesting dynamics to it i i'd be i'm curious really to be honest from from that side of the table how how they came to that choice right um but yeah like i think i think watch this space that does it for us here today at everything about hydrogen a huge thank you to paul aramenko ceo and co-founder of universal hydrogen for making the time to join us on the show and explain how he and his team are planning to use hydrogen to decarbonize the future of aviation. Thank you as always to Patrick and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. And as you know, we love to hear from our listeners here at Everything About Hydrogen. If you have any questions for us or our guests and would like to get in touch with us, please send us an email at info at h2podcast.com or find us on Twitter at, at About Hydrogen. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on Everything About Hydrogen.